Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. The scene from the 2006 movie, Amazing Grace, another great, uh, great movie that um, tells a powerful story from, from our past. It's got... Uh, Doctor Strange in it before he was Doctor Strange. So, uh, so before he became uh, famous for Marvel movies, he uh, he plays the uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during the time. It tells the story of the life of William Wilberforce. You likely know the name. He's one of the key figures in the abolitionist movement of England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In that particular clip, we're watching the interaction between Wilberforce and another prominent uh, figure from the time, John Newton. Newton, of course, was a slave ship captain turned pastor. Also became a very leading opponent to the slave trade. You see him there reflecting on the cost of his, um, of his trade. He is perhaps best known to us for writing the hymn I think that everybody loves. I've never met anybody that doesn't love the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, and whether it's the new one that's got the, the extra choruses added to it or the, just the old one that's, uh, that's been around, uh, it's one of those songs that's enduring. And you know, we, the Bible talks about singing a new song in heaven. I sure hope we sing some, some of the uh, enduring songs of earth as well when we get there. Um, you know, what a, what a delight it would be to sing Amazing Grace as we are surrounding the throne there of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Um, the amazing thing about Will, William Wilberforce is the fact that he had to fight for nearly four decades as a member of parliament to end the practice of slavery in the British Empire. Parliament actually passed the Slave Abolition Act of 1833, which ended the practice in the British Empire, and Wilberforce would die three days after the law was enacted. He literally gave his life towards this singular cause. I love the scene in the movie because it's, it's Newton putting his story into the hands of Wilberforce. He says, this is my confession. And it's everything that he could remember, all the evidence that he could produce to detail the evil that was the slave trade. He says there, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's something to put on the mirror when you get ready in the morning. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Men like Newton and Wilberforce gave their lives towards that which seemed to be an absolutely unreachable goal, ending a tragic system that wrecked lives and destroyed families. I'm sure there were days in the fight where it seemed like their work was going nowhere. It very much semblance reminds me of the, the pro-life cause in the last uh, half a century in our own nation, that the day after day of standing up for life and seeming that those fights were going nowhere. But this story reminds us of something very important. God has given each of us a useful means, useful tools, useful uh, things to contribute to impact the kingdom of God. Each and every single one of us who are in Christ, God has put within us things that he believes are necessary for us to make an impact on the kingdom of God. We'll see that this week. You may say, I don't have much to do this week in vacation Bible school, but you may not have to be the Bible teacher this week to make a difference in the lives of a child. Maybe, maybe you're somebody, you say, oh, I'm just the safety team member. All I'm doing is, is making sure the kids are, are safe as they move around campus. Well, hello, I can't think of a of a more important thing right now in this season in which we live where you may have the opportunity to impact the life of a child. 
God has given each and every single one of us useful means and tools to impact the kingdom of God. And we may not think we're making a difference, but over the course of time, the simple daily acts of obedience can turn into remarkable movements for God. See, God's not looking for us to change the world today, but God is looking to each and every single one of us to change the day today. He wants us to be obedient today. He wants us to follow him today. There's one scene in the movie where a group of British aristocrats are on a, on a cruise, and it, it's everything you could imagine, the big puffy white wigs and sipping tea and enjoying, uh, enjoying the, the finer life that they would have there. And Wilberforce pulls up beside this, this luxurious boat, and he is in a slave ship called the Madagascar. And all the socialites began to smell the odors coming from that slave ship. And they begin to be disgusted when he explains to them what it is that they're smelling. He says, that's the smell of death. And all the proper British ladies are putting handkerchiefs over their nose. And he says, take the handkerchiefs down. Smell the smell of, of death. And he talks about how 200 people were delivered off that boat, even though it started with over 600 when it left Africa. You know, that situation did not change the slave status that day, but you could see as that interaction takes place that it did change some hearts, and it did win the day. We pick back up in Acts chapter 25 this morning, and, and we understand from last week that two years have come and gone since Paul was first put in prison by Governor Felix. For two years, Governor Felix has been trying to convince Paul to pay a bribe for his release, and for two years... His enemies have been festering. Two years, Paul has been sidelined from his mission work to the day-to-day -day obedience of following Christ from a jail cell. We pick back up in chapter 25, and there's a new governor in town, Governor Festus. We'll read there this morning. If you've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 25, we'll read verses 1 through 12. If you're able, would you please stand with me as I read Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. 
And then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's story, for this compelling journey that he is on that is full of all the drama and emotion that we would see on a, a modern TV show or movie, Lord. I, I, we see this, and it's so real and compelling to us. And pray, Father, that as we consider this story, this journey before us, that we might glean beneficial things from it, that we might grow in our walk and our faithfulness to you as we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Portius Festus. What a name, Festus. It sounds like a disease of some sort. Uh, you're suffering from a little bit of Festus. You need some, you know, you need an antibiotic. He was now in charge. He found himself, though, at a distinct disadvantage in this particular case. See, on one hand, he wanted to placate his new constituency. He's the governor of the Jews. He's in the long line of famous Jew uh, governors that we've heard of. You may remember a prominent one, Governor Pontius Pilate. So he wants to please this constituency. He's the governor. He needs to put a good foot forward. But on the other hand, he has to deal with Paul, who is a Roman citizen and who has certain rights and privileges contained as that Roman citizen. And the Jewish leaders were, were still looking for a way to conspire against Paul. You know, it's hard to imagine their hatred would still burn so hot after two years had passed. You know, today we understand how, how these controversies and conspiracies can keep boiling over because we got things like Fox News and CNN and MSNBC to continue to stoke the fires, right? But it's not like they sat in front of their TVs in ancient Israel and they watched the 24-hour news cycle and, and, and gave daily updates on the Apostle Paul. It's not like watching Johnny Depp's trial and everything where we were captivated for, for far too much of our lives to see that all unfold. It's not like that back then. If they didn't have the, the daily reminders of their rage pouring over. It's not like they had gas stations to pass every day to see gas go up 10 cents every night to remind people of how irritating they are about the current situation, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> in this situation, you'd almost think that Paul was out of sight, out of mind. He's locked up in jail. He's no concern to us anymore, but that's not the case. These leaders make a play on the new governor to take advantage of his inexperience. I mean, again, this is full of conspiracy. This is, this is these leaders talking and, and saying, let's manipulate the situation this way. Let's take advantage of the situation. Let's take advantage of Governor Festus. And it almost acts like a quid pro quo. If you want us to get along with you, then you help us out. Bring Paul back to Jerusalem. You need to understand what's going on here. This isn't just an isolated situation where Paul is this pawn in this grand scheme. There's lots of things going on in the contemporary situation of this particular story. We're getting into the early 60s. And the 60s in Palestine, a lot like the 60s in America, there was unrest brewing. There was trouble boiling over. There is, there is a fight that is about to unfold. Beginning in 66 AD, you have the beginning of a major war between the Jews and the Romans. It would culminate in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which Jesus actually foretold. 
There's already bands of domestic terrorists roaming around in Judea called the Sakari Bandits. What a fun name. Like, imagine they had leather jackets with patches or something. Oh, you're part of the Sakari Bandits or something, right? These guys were bad dudes. They would carry around these little tiny swords. They were concealed swords that were curved, and they would carry them around, and they would conduct political assassinations as part of their, uh, as part of their, that was their thing. And they were all trying to stir up stuff, and so they would conduct these assassinations in the attempts to provoke the Jews to go ahead and revolt. And so you had these, these terrorists who were roaming around. These guys would frequently dress as worshipers, and they would show up at the temple with their concealed swords, and they would dress as worshipers, and they would even carry out assassinations there at the temple mound to try to provoke a fight. And so all of this is going on while Paul is in prison, and all of this is being worked out around the apostle Paul. And so Festus, he's a governor. He's got a vested interest in trying to bring the region into some semblance of order because, after all, what happens to deposed governors of Judea? Anybody know? What happened to Pontius Pilate? He's not somebody that shows back up in history. And what about Governor Felix? Where'd he disappear to? We don't really know where these guys end up going, but we kind of have a hunch. And so Festus wants to do his part to bring this region into order. History would show us that he was ultimately unsuccessful as the region erupted into a full-scale war there shortly after his reign began. All this to say there was trouble brewing, and Paul was right in the middle of it. If you recall from chapter 24, Paul had to be escorted out of Jerusalem with a massive entourage of troops just to guarantee his safety. He had a group of men at that time who were ready to assassinate him, and they're all still trying to figure out how to kill him and to avoid that whole due process issue that he was entitled to. They don't have a case against him. There's no criminal statute that's been violated. They hate Paul because Paul serves Jesus. That's it. They hate Paul because Paul serves Jesus. And I bet their hatred is intensified because he was one of them, at least he was before meeting Jesus. All of this confirms something that Jesus warned us about very clearly in the Gospels. Jesus told his disciples and warns us as well, if they hated Jesus, how much more are they going to hate his followers? If they hated Jesus, how much more are they going to hate Jesus' followers? Listen, we would do well to remember this today. If you hold fast to a faithful confession of the gospel and all the consequences therein, you're not going to be the most popular person around today. Many of you are old enough to remember a day where being in the church was the cultural norm, where being, in, you know, being a member of First Baptist or First Methodist or whatever the church was, that that's where the whole community gathered together, where, where the people who were weird were the people who didn't go to church. Many of you remember that time. It wasn't that long ago, but we are living in a generation today where we're the weird ones, okay? On the badge, you know, we'll get leather jackets with the patches on it. We're the weird ones, okay? That's what we're being, what's being communicated today. We are the weird ones. If you choose to follow Jesus today and you understand following Jesus comes with consequences, Following Jesus affects what we think, what we believe, how we act, where we go. It affects who we vote for. It has consequences up and down the board. You can't just follow Jesus partly. It's, a life, it, it's an all-encompassing decision. 
And so it comes with consequences. Following Jesus means something. And again, I'm not talking about anything like persecution. Americans talking about persecution is silly because nobody here is being persecuted. Are we being oppressed in some ways? Sure. But nobody's being persecuted in America. When COVID lockdowns happened and churches were shut down, that wasn't persecution. When you have your life threatened to come to church, well, we'll talk about persecution then. It's been irritating, though. It's been frustrating, and we recognize that some of the liberties that we hold dear are being stripped away. You see, here's the thing. If we're going to honor Christ with our lives, there are two things that potentially will happen. One is we'll win some to Jesus, right? If you follow Jesus with your life, and that means that you're telling others about Jesus, that you're introducing other people to Jesus, there will be those who will say, I want to follow Jesus. This person, this man, this woman, this teacher, this, this, this individual in my life has been a positive example to me. They've introduced me to Christ. I want to follow Jesus because I've seen the impact Jesus has made on their lives. That will happen. That's how it happens. We live the gospel, we share the gospel, some people come to Christ. But then there will be those who will reject the gospel, and many will reject it with great hostility. And this is truly foreign to us in our nation. We've lived in a nation where religious liberty was a cornerstone of our very identity, but understand that that cornerstone today is being replaced by invented liberties. What do I mean? We hear people talking about constitutional rights for things that aren't even mentioned in the Constitution, things that aren't mentioned in the Bill of Rights, things that aren't even mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, yet these things are defined as constitutional rights. But when we open our Constitution, we see that religious liberty is clearly enshrined in our governing documents. And so we see these, this shift that's taking place. Last month, you all know about the Supreme Court leak in the Dobbs decision that's coming soon. That leak came and indicated that there is a possibility that the highest court in the land is looking to overthrow Roe versus Wade. I celebrate and rejoice in that decision when it comes. I absolutely rejoice in that decision. I hope that what has been released is true. But what happened? People began taking their protests away from government and even taking it to churches. I've heard of pastors dealing with protesters in the street outside of their churches, protesting because of a pro-life position. Most of the protests this last time were aimed at Catholic churches, but I have no doubt that Protestant churches will be the eventual target of their rage. And this is just one issue. It's a monumental one, but it is just one issue. There are plenty of other opportunities to run afoul of the current cultural mood. There's a German word that I think is helpful for us to understand this. You hear this word sometimes in literature. It's, the word is zeitgeist. It's a fun word to say. What does that word mean? It means the prevailing spirit or mood of any given period of time. You can think back to, through your life and you can think of decades in your life where this, there, there's been a prevailing mood that has identified those different, those different seasons. You, can, uh, you go back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and you can think of, of the prevailing attitude, the prevailing mood that occupied those given times. I think it's safe to say that the zeitgeist of our day is one that is not friendly towards faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus. The zeitgeist of Paul's day was unfriendly to the gospel as well, but for very different reasons. 
The outcome, however, is the same. Open hostility towards those who are confident enough to make a public acknowledgement of Jesus. We are entering a season where your and my firm Christian convictions will not be tolerated in the public arena. It is coming. And you've already seen these preliminary skirmishes play out, whether it was the blow-up. Y'all remember 10 years ago, the blow-up around Chick-fil-A? I remember going to Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day in August of 2012, and I remember having to park in the grocery store parking lot next to the Chick-fil-A because there was no possible way that you could get into Chick-fil-A. There were so many cars there. Chick-fil-A restaurants had to close early because they ran out of chicken. Now, if they ran out of chicken today, it's because of a supply chain issue. But they ran out of chicken because they sold out of chicken. How's Chick-fil-A sell out of chicken? I mean, I thought they were doing miracles in the back, multiplying chicken, but they ran out. Why'd that happen? Because the CEO, Dan Cathy, had the hubris to admit that he celebrated biblical values when it comes to the family. (gasps) How dare he have biblical values when it comes to the family. Even in our own day, we've seen court battles regarding health care mandates, COVID policies, and things like that. Sometimes the church has come out on top. Sometimes it hasn't. More recently, this is interesting, governments have started exploring laws about the counseling profession as it relates to the LGBT movement. Some of these laws that have been explored could even be used against pastors and clergy who question the morality of some of these lifestyle choices. In a growing number of areas, in the whole nation of Canada, if a person came into a pastor's office, asked for help in dealing with same-sex attraction, the pastor could be fined or jailed for simply giving biblical counsel. That's the reality. One might argue these aren't primarily gospel issues. But I believe this is how these things always start. You start by chipping away at the edges, and eventually you get to the center. And as it currently stands, churches are already, we're in the middle of this as a church, already having to overhaul their governing documents to stand up to the withering assaults that are all, of, all but guaranteed in the coming years. That's the world in which we live. Festus had the political sense to know that sending Paul to Jerusalem would be career suicide for him and perhaps even more. A high-profile assassination of Paul would have likely stoked this rebellion against Rome that was already starting to brew, so Festus made the wise move to keep Paul there in Caesarea. He gave the Jews the opportunity to come and make their case. We get to verse 7, and we get a rehash of the accusation that had happened two years prior. There were no crimes. There were no offenses. This was nothing but a show trial designed to provoke an execution. And I can't help but see all this unfold and come to another very important conclusion for us today. Live an honorable life. Acts 25, verse 7 When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Couldn't prove it. No evidence. All they had was their rage towards the apostle Paul. They had two years to make a case. 
They had two years to gather evidence. They had two years to gather witnesses. They had two years to get their stories straight. They had two years. And all they had was their rage. They couldn't prove it because Paul made sure that his life was marked by integrity. He wasn't perfect. None of us are, right? None of us get it right all the time. But Paul made sure that his life was one that was marked by integrity. When you find a perfect church or a perfect pastor, be sure to write down the date because it won't stay perfect for long. But the reality is that Paul worked to be honorable. He worked with a team. Paul always had somebody with him. I mean, you read through Acts and his letters, there's always somebody with Paul. Now, sometimes it may have just been the Roman centurion that was chained to him for the shift, but he always had somebody with him. His ministry was filled with people that served alongside of him. Get to the end of his letters, and there's always a list of people. You know, so-and-so is with me, and -and so-and-so is with me. Greet so-and-so who was with me here. I mean, there's this long list of Timothy and Titus and Luke. The list gets really extensive of all the people that Paul came alongside of in ministry. He always had a team with him. Paul strived to be accountable. One of the things we see Paul doing in the New Testament, he's collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem. He talks about it openly. It's not a secret. It's not something that he's hiding. I have no reason to question. I bet he kept records of the offering because Paul was a businessman. He knew the importance of good records. So I bet Paul had an offering. Well, the church at Corinth gave this, and the church at Ephesus gave this, and this widow gave this. I bet Paul kept records. doesn't say it, but I had no reason to doubt that. Uh, We even know that in many of the places where Paul stayed for a lengthy period of time, he worked in a bivocational capacity. He worked as a tent maker just so there'd be no question, no confusion, no issue there. He worked during the day as a tent maker, and at night he was a missionary just to make sure there was no question. He didn't want somebody to be able to look at him and say, you know, he's skimming the offering. You know, the, the Bible talks about Judas doing that. Judas was skimming the, skimming the treasury that Jesus, I mean, Judas was in charge of it. But, but Paul, he didn't want that, that accusation leveled against him. He, don't, he kept an account of it, I'm sure. He didn't skim the offering to meet his own needs. He took care of it on his own. The principle at work here is the same thing that Peter mentions in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says there, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter gives this as both a negative and a positive. He first of all says, stay away from the passions of the flesh. We know what those things are, those things that that drag us down, those things that that are besetting sins for us. Stay away from the passions of the flesh. Don't, Don't go down that pathway. But then the positive command is keep your conduct honorable. The whole point is exactly what Paul demonstrated with his life. All those accusations were made, all those things that were said, all those fingers that were pointed at Paul, nothing stuck. There were no accusations that had any teeth. Two years, and they weren't able to do anything that would stick to Paul. For two years, it appears the only thing they could do was develop a conspiracy to see him assassinated rather than build a criminal case against him. 
They couldn't accuse him of financial wrongdoing. They couldn't accuse him of sexual wrongdoing. All of the riots and troubles that followed him, they couldn't find anything at all to charge him with. And Paul is even prepared to deal with a potential sentence. He's prepared. He says in verse 11, if I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape death. Paul says, if you got something against me, give me the punishment I deserve. If what I've done deserves death, then see that I'm executed. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Peter's point is the same for us. We are living in an increasingly hostile culture. Your workplace is going to be less and less accommodating to your Christian faith. Your classrooms are going to become more and more hostile to your faith. But the instructions are the same. Keep your conduct honorable. That's why this report regarding the abuse situation in the Southern Baptist Convention is so alarming. Because it details far too many cases where our conduct hasn't been honorable. And when our conduct isn't honorable, our credibility is damaged, and when our credibility is damaged, our witness is damaged, and we end up bringing reproach to the name of Christ. In the next chapter, the conclusion of everyone involved in Paul's trial is not, man, what a rascal, he deserves to die. The conclusion of all the council, all the leaders, all the kings, all the governors, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could be freed today. Nothing stuck because he was an honorable man who chose to follow Jesus. Paul comes to the conclusion of his defense before Festus. You ever been in one of those situations where you know just this is inevitable? Like you can try to figure out a different way. You can try to, to, to solve the problem differently, but you just know that, that this is the inevitable outcome of the situation. And this is where Paul is. He gets to the end of this defense and he says the next thing, the next best thing for him to do is appeal his case to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen who was on trial had the right to appeal his conviction, to appeal his trial. It's much like as us. Is, you know, if, if you are convicted of a crime, you have the right to an appeal. Uh, you have the right to appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court will hear the case. I mean, every, every one of us has that right as a citizen of the United States, and Paul has the same right as a citizen of the Roman Empire. And so he gets to this point, he says, the, only, the, the, the next best thing I can do is appeal to Caesar. But even there, we find the reason for all this. You know, we have the benefit of reading backwards, right? I mean, we get to this story. If you've never read this story before, if you've never read through Acts or never heard of the outcome of Paul's story, this would be very compelling, right? Like, like what's going to happen next? We get to the end of chapter 25, and he's appealed to Caesar. Well, well that's a page turner. Right? I mean, this is, this is law and order. This is, uh, this, is, this is one of these shows. You want to see what the next week holds. And so you flip to the next chapter, and, and then we get into some more exciting things. And so, so it's, it's a compelling story, but you and I already know the outcome. We already know what the goal is. In fact, Luke has already told us at the very beginning what the goal is. We know all along that Rome has been the goal. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
And Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We've been through 25 chapters of this book, and each step of the way, we've seen God moving through the Holy Spirit to take the gospel powerfully into all these places. But the grand prize of the Great Commission wasn't Ephesus or Athens or Corinth. The grand prize of the book of Acts was always Rome. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome, but the inverse of that, if all roads lead to Rome, that means that all roads also lead away from Rome. Imagine, if you would, if you could plant a thriving, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, gospel-centered church right there. I don't know, I was looking at the real estate there, over there where those golden arches were. That's a, that's a pretty good, that's a prime spot right there. That's Times Square. The world comes together in that location right there. Can you imagine the number of people that if you were a faithful, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, the impact that you could have with a powerful church right there in the middle of Times Square. And all the people who would come and hear and all the people who'd be impacted by the gospel would then be sent. What if you could plant a church right here? <laughs> they need it, don't they? Main Street, USA, right there in, under Cinderella's castle. You imagine if you could have a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, Bible-honoring, Jesus-loving church right there in the middle of Main Street in Disney World. I've been to Disney World before. Uh, I'll stop there. Man, Disney World's like the, I mean, there are some people who would take this too literally. Disney World's like heaven. And I'm not talking about that it's glorious. I'm talking about that there's people from every nation, tribe, and tongue there. I mean, if you can have a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, gospel-centered church right there, people come, they hear the gospel, they get sent back to their nations, back to their, back to their homes, empowered with the gospel to change lives. That's what Rome was. That's what Rome was. Rome was Times Square. Rome was Cinderella Castle. Rome was that place where the world came and did their business, and then they left. If you could reach people in places like that, then those folks could go home and take the gospel with them. We saw a preview of that when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch, and that Ethiopian was converted, and he went back, and there's a church in Ethiopia called the Coptic Church in Ethiopia that historians believe that that, that man helped to start based on his encounter with Philip. Rome very much represented the ends of the earth, or at least the gateway to the ends of the earth. Think about this today. You could get in your car today, and if you had enough money and a negative COVID test, in 48 hours, you could be in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. In 48 hours, you could be in sub-Saharan Africa. In 48 hours, you could be in the outback of Australia if you had enough money and a negative COVID test. And a passport, probably. Think, of that. Think about that. That's how small our world is today. Rome was that ancient equivalent of the Atlanta airport. And when you look at Paul's life, there was a long game in, at work in Paul's life. That long game was to get to Rome. But he got to Rome not by setting himself up to say, I'm going to go to Rome one day. 
He got to Rome by taking years of obedient steps. Think of William Wilberforce and John Newton. No denying that the long game of their lives was for their lives to count towards the ending of slavery. But it took years of obedient steps to get them there. What's the long game of your life? What's, what's the outcome of your Christian faith? Who knows where you end up? But I will tell you the best way to get there. Honor Jesus today. Today. Honor Jesus right now. Honor Jesus today. Be obedient to Christ today. Serve Christ today. Live an honorable life today. Invest in your children and grandchildren today that they might know Jesus. Bring them to church. Read the Bible together. We have no way of knowing what the outcome of our lives may be. We certainly have no way of knowing what the outcome of our children and grandchildren's life may be. But we do know this that Christ is asking us to follow him daily. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. That's, a, that's kind of a stunning thing to say. I die every day. What's he saying? He's saying every day it's a decision. Be obedient to follow Jesus. Jesus even said that it was a daily decision to take up your cross and follow him. And so your life may not lead to Rome. Your life may simply lead to teaching a child or a grandchild how to follow Jesus and be obedient to Jesus. That may be the, the goal that Christ has for your life, to invest in your children and grandchildren that they know who Christ is. But all that happens by setting out today, with your goal today simply being to win the day for Christ. If you'll do that, each and every single day, then the long game of your life is certainly to your good and to God's glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm grateful for your word. Thank you for Paul's life and for the significance of Paul's life. It counted for something. Even in this season in which he found himself so long chained to a centurion, under house arrest, unable to move, unable to travel, unable, unable, to, unable to preach the gospel to the masses. Even as we read this in chapter 25, it's hard to think that the, the last time Paul communicated to a large group of people was the day he was arrested when he turned and addressed the mob. But God, your faithfulness in Paul's life, even in this season of drought, even in this season of, of imprisonment, even in this season, as we talked about last week, is being stuck. God, you were faithful to him daily, and he took advantage of those daily opportunities presented to him, whether it was to go share with Felix or to make his defense before Festus. He kept his eyes on you and sought to be obedient to you. Father, I pray that 
you would help us to daily seek to honor you. God, we know that we want to live lives that, are, that count, lives that matter. We think about next month and next year, and sometimes we just neglect this day. And so, God, help us to win this day for you, that we would win this day by spending time in your word, that we would win this day by being in prayer, that we would win this day by sharing our faith with the person we encounter at the store, that we would win this day by being faithful to others when given an opportunity to share the gospel, that we would win the day with a goal towards living a life of obedience to you. Father, we're grateful for this story and for the compelling way in which you present it to us. May we follow Paul's example and that our lives might count for the kingdom of God. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.